1: Uh, Welcome back to Hertel. She's one of our favorites. Been a while since we've had her. Glad to have her now. She's the senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com, a fabulous writer. She is also a double Mountaineer graduate of WVU, including the law school, which is what we're going to be talking to her about. Uh, She is a practicing attorney. M. Carpenter, how are you, my friend?
0: I'm well, thank you. How are you?
1: Uh, We're doing fantastic. Okay, so we're going through the confirmation hearings for Katanji Brown-Jackson uh we have the normal silliness which we'll get into in a minute but first let's start with something basic you went to law school I did not uh so we have something that's going on I think it's becoming a little bit like our HIPAA discussion and like Nuremberg codes and some other things that you rail on where people start using a legal term to sound like they know what they're talking about with legal things but they have no idea what they're talking about uh that guy that has that program that I don't like to talk about is once again bringing up and demanding that we see uh, Judge Jackson's LSAT scores. Would you please, slowly, with small words for the people from Logan and the folks out in overflow that couldn't get into the service, what the LSAT is, what it isn't, and what it does and does not apply to?
0: Sure. The LSAT is the law school aptitude test. It's basically the SATs for law school that you take, and you know after you finish college and you're trying to get into law school, you take the LSAT. It's an entrance exam. Um, It's nothing more than that. It has nothing to do with one's um, aptitude to be a judge or their knowledge of the law uh, or their how they apply the law. Um, There are no legal questions on the LSAT. There's no pre they don't assume any pre-knowledge of the law when you take the LSAT. It's more of um, reading comprehension. Uh, my favorite part of it is logic puzzles. You know, those that say there are five people sitting at the table. The person in red is sitting next to Jim. Jim is not wearing blue. The blue is sitting at the end. You know, things like that. you got to figure out what order the people are sitting in logic puzzles. Love those. Um, that's what the LSAT is. So to be demanding the LSAT scores of a judicial, of a Supreme Court nominee is like asking for the SAT scores um, when you're, you know, somebody's applying for a job. They may want your college transcripts, they may want your grades, but no one asks what your SAT scores were unless you're trying to get into college. So it's, it's, it's really seems like a pathetic reach uh, to if that's the best they can do is, well, you won't tell us how, what your LSAT scores were. That's pathetic.
1: Wait a minute. Now, there's no legal questions on the LSAT.
0: No, because this is a test you take before you go to law school. They don't expect you to know anything about the law before you go to law school. This is just sort of a are you, you know, are you smart enough to to be successful in law school? That's the point of this. Can you comprehend? Can you can you logically parse the facts and, and come up with a conclusion that makes sense? It has nothing to, there is no um, legal questions on the LSAT.
1: So why even bring that up? I know the answer to this is a rhetorical question because, uh, you know, insipidus dollars want to lie to you and make it sound like there's something insidious here when there is not. I kind of compare it to like, you know, I was in the military. So you take an ASVAB, a lot of high school students do. You take the ASVAB, it's a placement and to tell people you're, you know, try to get some insight into your abilities, but that had absolutely nothing to do with my military career. It had nothing to do with the rank I achieved. It had nothing to do with how I performed my duties. Uh, the SAT, ACT, we've had a lot of discussions over that. I, I don't even know what to say about it. It's, so, it's just so insepitously stupid to demand the LSAT. Is yeah. it just a legally, I, I, that's why I compared it to you ranting about HIPAA It's. I think it's just really people wanting to sound smart when they're not. And in this particular case, with this particular talking head who knows well and good that it's nonsense, trying to fool people into thinking you're saying something legalese when it really isn't.
0: Exactly. And it's this is another instance, and it baffles me that people don't understand this, of people who know better that think you don't know better, and they are counting on you not knowing better, which means basically he thinks his audience is stupid. So (laughs) there's no other way to explain it for me. You have to think your audience is stupid to say something like that and expect it to, to, uh, be influential to the people who are hearing it. Um, and why is he doing this? Because best I can tell, he can't find anything, anything else that it's just such a reach that I can't fathom why else he would be going for that, uh, that angle of things. And I'll just add that, um, if Judge Jackson, I believe she, she went to Harvard. I'm gonna say that if she did release her LSAT score, it would probably be pretty darn good.
1: Yeah, she was a year behind. She was a year uh, apart from Ted Cruz of other among other people, interestingly, and not. Okay, so let's talk about these hearings because we've already bashed these to pieces. We talked about it during the Kavanaugh hearings. We talked about it during the Amy Comey Barrett hearings. Uh, The stuff that happens on the dais aimed at the nominee is mostly nonsense. We don't really learn a lot. But for you, because you do write about these things, you do in-depth studies of these things, we always tell people, read stuff for yourself. let's, Let's not skip over the nomenclature here. Where can people actually find this stuff? Because legal opinions, especially at the circuit court level, the appeals court level, this is all public information. This isn't hidden away in, you know, like the criminal court proceeding files where the criminal court, certain things are protected and only lawyers can get into it. This stuff's all public record just for the average person that wants to dig into this stuff that would actually like to read her legal writing because legal writing has a style to it, just like other, all other writing. How does somebody find it? Because you find this stuff and then you write about it so we don't have to read about it but let's just assume if folks want to find it on their own and they want to turn down the media noise on this and read judge Jackson's opinion or any other judges opinions for that matter, where do they go about finding this information? Because it's all free. It's all out there. And most of it's in PDF form where you can search it.
0: Right. Uh, You can find the, her court of appeals cases of which there are only two and we can get into that, but um, all of her, uh, All of the opinions for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the various circuits can be found online at uscourts.gov. Specifically for D.C., it is um, cadc.uscourts.gov. Those are so those are where the her uh, opinions for her short, very short time on the appellate bench are located. You can also look up the report for the District of Columbia and where you can find her 600 plus opinions issued for her time on the bench, which, you know, there's a lot more of those. So it's all available if you want to look through it. And um, I've been trying to (laughs) Um, here's the here's the thing with that, you know. um, I did a deep dive into Amy Coney Barrett when she was the nominee and she had several many, well, I think it was seven years perhaps on the appellate court. Um, so there was plenty of, of decisions that I could look through and read to try to get some idea of her judicial philosophy or her, her bent on how she might rule on certain issues and it's even organized by subject matter, it's pretty easy to find that information. Um, because Judge Jackson only has two opinions from uh, from the appellate court and, and they're not particularly interesting or influential, um, I, one of them is a labor law opinion. I can't remember what the other is. So uh, I had to go then to her time in the district court and uh, again, she has over 600 of them uh, during that time, and they're not organized by subject matter. They're just kind of, they're just organized by date. <laughs> and so uh, I can find her name and see which opinion she wrote, but um, I have found in clicking through just kind of randomly trying to find um, something interesting, a lot of what I'm seeing are just, you know, two page uh, orders or memorandums that that are accompanying in order to dismiss a case. And and if you think about it, you know, she's she's sitting in the district where people are suing the government routinely. And when that happens, you get a lot of crackpot cases. So, um, you know, we have a lot of short opinions, dismissing cases brought by pro se litigants who think the government is spying on them personally or trying to sue um, the Department of Justice because their ex-wife is trying to get child support. It's just craziness. So it's really hard to dig through all of those things and find interesting or, or cases that are helpful in, in trying to form an opinion. They're there. Um, I just have a full time job, which makes it very hard to find all of them. So, um there are a few interesting things on there, I can say. It's just that they're, it's difficult to find. Uh, and so I think that rather than going out and trying to read these things for themselves and trying to dig through these, finding the needles in the haystack of the substance, they're going to pull out things like um, her LSAT scores. <laughs> I know Tucker Carlson, I hate to say it, sorry, I said the name, he should not be named, uh, isn't, isn't reading any of these opinions, I'm positive.
1: And one other thing before we move along on it, uh, because of that day job, you have argued in courts and the appeals court level. When when people are saying that and they're talking about qualifications, we we have different Supreme Court justices. You know, um, Elena Kagan came from the academic side. Amy Comey Barrett was academic and sat on the bench both uh gorsuch of course was well known for his appeals court level and and his legal whether you agree with his philosophy or not he very brilliant legal writer at the appeals court letter we have different kind of justices talk about the qualifications for all those all that district court work because some folks were kind of saying well she's only been on the appeals court bench for a little less than since june of 2021 that's a lot of experience that is practicable when you're at the supreme court level right
0: yeah it is and and as far as qualifications, I don't know that there's any one particular or one particular set of qualifications. Uh, I think a I think it's good to have on the court just sort of a broad background among all of the judges. And yes, we see with, with Amy Coney Barrett, she has very little practice under her belt. She spent very, very few years of her career actually um you know, trying cases or or being a trial lawyer or being a uh, practicing attorney, as you think of a practicing attorney. She does have a lot of, and that doesn't necessarily disqualify her in my opinion, and I didn't think it did you know, back when I was considering her, um, so that you can be qualified just by being a scholar of the law, by having, you know, studied a lot, being a, a, being a law professor and it doesn't, you know, just because you've been a professor rather than a, a practitioner, I don't think would necessarily disqualify you. I think that's fine. Um, but one thing, and we've, it's been talked about a lot, one thing with Judge Jackson that sort of sets her apart is that she was a public defender. She was a criminal defense attorney for the indigent, which is a, um, I've said it before, I'm not going to go through it again, but as you know, my opinion, that's one of—is probably the highest calling of an attorney. And uh, that is a very unique background to have, and I think it's something that's needed on the court, and I think that... Um, that would be a very helpful um, set of expertise that she brings to the bench. That now, you do you want to you want judges that have enough broad base of knowledge that they can meaningfully consider and contemplate and, and rule on a variety of legal issues. Uh, so I think having all of various backgrounds is a, is a positive.
1: Yeah, talking to M. Carpenter, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com and an attorney in her own right. She writes a legal column. Most weeks, not every weeks, because of that day job we were talking about. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue to delve into the background of Judge Jackson. We're also going to talk about what we can and can't glean from these hearings. And she has a couple of examples of Judge Jackson's uh, court case writings and opinion writings. One of them that's actually really good that might give you a little insight into her. More with our friend M. Carpenter right after this on her tell. Hi, welcome back to Tell. continuing our conversation with M. Carpenter. She's senior editor at Ordinary Times. She's also an attorney in her own right. Okay, uh, we've talked about it, the background, a little bit. When you are digging through these, uh, judges and lawyers, but especially judges when they start uh, getting up into the, you know, the district level and the appeals court level, they develop a writing style because they understand that other attorneys are reading them. And then when they go to the appeals court level and the Supreme Court level, uh, they understand that people study their opinions. Scalia was kind of infamous for this, that he would write it very much so for, because he knows people's going to read it. What have you gleaned from her writing style? I know you said a lot of it's just little two page things, but you found a couple of examples that really does allow her personality to come out a little bit on top of just her uh, judicial philosophy.
0: Yeah, uh, one in particular that that tickled me, uh, and this is going way back to 2013 when she was fairly new, Uh, there was a case in which a pro se plaintiff, uh, Mr. Ratley, had sued the US Postal Service for $341.99 for damage to a package. He claimed, uh, made a claim under the insurance that the Postal Service offered, and he filed it um, basically in a small claims court of uh, for suits against um, the federal government, the small claims and conciliation branch of the District of Columbia Superior Court. Um, and the, and the judge in that in the superior court had dismissed the, the plaintiff or dismissed the complaint because of bad service. You have to follow certain steps and rules. And um, when you're serving a complaint against somebody or serving a lawsuit on somebody and he apparently didn't meet the didn't do what he was supposed to do. And, and his case was dismissed. Um, then he decided he was going to go a step further and he, and he tried to have his case reinstated and that should have been dismissed at that point it was a pretty easy call for the the court his case was kind of dead in the water at that point it could have been gone at that point but instead of letting that happen the government lawyers (laughs) took the inexplicable step of as she as judge jackson puts it decided to make a federal case out of it (laughs) and they asked that this the small claims case be removed to to the federal court to the um, appeals court Uh, so it just in in for to put that into context had the plaintiff filed his complaint in the in the in the in the federal court it would have cost him 350 dollars which is more than what he was asking for from from the, the the post office so As she writes here, despite having already secured near final dismissal of this matter, the Postal Service inexplicably snatched defeat from the jaws of victory by filing a notice of removal and thereby shifting the plaintiff's motion for reinstatement of the complaint and presumably the entire case into federal court. Uh, (laughs) And so, you know, she could have, Judge Jackson could have pretty quickly disposed of this case saying that, you know, removal is improper and, and, or other, for other reasons. But instead she took about seven pages basically to explain all of the ways in which the federal government was acting stupidly in this case. Um, You know, she says uh, there was uh, a lot of, um, Opportunities for the government to have backed off, and uh, you know now they're just dis- they're going to litigate this case in federal court at a cost far greater than the claimed benefit. Uh, the Postal Service vigorously maintains that the agency properly removed the plaintiff's reinstatement for two reasons. Uh, because one, the USPS is a federal agency and was improperly sued in state court. And second, because the plaintiff's motion for reinstatement constitutes a removable civil action. So it wasn't so much that they couldn't remove it, but they didn't have to. And and they're, they're wasting a lot of time and money here. And, and, um, she says, uh, without providing any clues to a broader, more fundamental question, why did the agency determine that removal to federal court, even if valid, was appropriately invoked under the circumstances presented in this case? But she says, nevertheless, the court is persuaded. <laughs> so she says, okay, we're, we're going to take jurisdiction of this case and... Uh, despite the fact that leaving well enough alone would certainly have been the easier, less costly and more efficient matter for the option of this dispute. <laughs> they, of course she's saying, had they just left this case in the, the lower court, it would have been dismissed and it probably it would have been over with but instead they're going to spend all this time and money removing it and she if you read the opinion and it's only seven pages it's it's really actually slyly funny. She's not overtly critical or being rude to, to the defendants here the, to the post office here but she if I was the attorney in this case reading this, I would have felt really dumb when I was done reading it. So um, it's, it's a good read. It's a good example of, of her writing. Um, if, it, and I think it, it's one worth looking up. It is, uh, again, it is Ratley, R-A-T-L-E-Y versus United States Postal Service from a 2013 case. Um, unfortunately, I did follow up to see what happened with this case. And Mr. Ratley, I think found himself a little overwhelmed by the uh, process and procedure of the u.s uh district court um i kept saying appellate court but i meant district court and so he apparently did not follow up and didn't file any more any more pleadings and his case was ultimately dismissed And the u.s postal service one unfortunately uh, but it, it's a it's just, it's just good read. It's a good, funny uh, case. It was the only one so far that I found that was really interesting and, uh, and easy to read and, and uh, a fun opinion, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, talking to him, Carpenter, uh, senior editor of Ordinary Times and an attorney who explains legal things so well that even I can understand him. That's fun. Uh, a little less fun is some of the stuff going on in the hearings. I don't want to get into the, the technicalities of the case law because they keep bringing it up and up. But when when you hear the, the senators bringing up uh, the, the child porn cases and things like this, um, you've done a review on her now. You're looking through her stuff. How hard do they have to dig to find a case like that and how applicable is it really? to her broader legal theories, because I know it's it's scary words because you start talking uh, child molesters and child porn and all mm-hmm. these really scary, ugly, wicked things that do need to be severely punished. Nobody's saying they shouldn't be. But also, there's a little bit of a thing here is, you know, you're also dealing with victims. You're often dealing with victims who are victims themselves. There seems to be a little bit of a, a problem here where they want to talk about judicial discretion as a one way street when it's not. It's an entirely complicated thing
0: yeah for the first part of your question about how they had to dig to find this i feel like somebody put a bug in their ear somebody maybe who is involved and was unhappy with that with the outcome of that case may have alerted them to its existence because otherwise yeah finding that would have been very difficult um especially in a criminal case you know you can find all of these documents online in pacer that's the the court documents electronic filing system that you can pay and get access to, and. Um, you know, every time there's a hearing in a criminal case, and there are a lot of hearings in criminal cases, an order is generated just to say, you know, we were in court this day and this is what happened. So, any particular any criminal case is probably has dozens of orders, uh, can have up, to, you know, maybe dozens of orders listed online. And uh, you would have to find, you'd be digging through all of these orders, trying to find a sentencing order or a sentencing memorandum, you would really be drilling down through levels of documents and to try to find something that specific. It's not something that you're just going to run across by browsing. So I think probably someone put a bug in, in in someone's ear to look at that particular case because it it does sound icky on the surface it is hard to it is it is a, an easy one for her opponents to latch onto and and make a big deal about because it is such a sensitive uh, a sensitive topic and nobody wants to be on the side of leniently punishing people with child sexual abuse material on their computers. I uh, think of in this case, it was an 18-year-old high school student, which may or may not have played into the judge's um, decision there. Um, and I, again, yeah, we don't want it to get into it too deeply, but, you know, judges do have discretion, and quite often they use it in the opposite direction, and they, you know, especially in federal court, the some sentences can be really severe. And um, it's not as common for a downward departure from guidelines to get a, a, a lesser sentence in my experience. So um, that's an interesting case as well for them to, to highlight. Uh, it's unfortunate that it's this particular topic. I wonder um, if they looked as hard for perhaps you know a white collar criminal whose sentence may have diverged below the sentencing guidelines or below a prosecutor's recommendation. And if they would have made uh, made as much of a a point of pointing that out, probably not.
1: I got a little frustrated listening to it because um, Senator Josh Hawley, who I hold in high contempt because I just I don't care for him at all. But he kept arguing with a judge of like, well, Congress's guidelines were this, that and the other. And he kept coming back to he's like, well, there's the federal guidelines and then there's the sentencing guidelines and then there's the Congress wants this and Congress wants this. And I'm sitting there and I just want to throw some on the TV like, yes, and Congress shouldn't have had a role in any of this because it was once again, a symptom of legislation of do something of mandatory sentencing, which almost never works out well once it actually goes to the practical level of the criminal court system. But that's another debate for another day, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree
1: talking to M. Carpenter. Before we got to let you go, though, uh, let's go back to uh, Judge Jackson for just a second. Uh, She's going to be confirmed. This is this is all dog and pony shows. She's going to get confirmed. I suspect she'll probably get a couple of Republican votes somewhere in here as well. Uh, This is not uh, this is not a, a flipping of the court. This is a progressive with another progressive who's well in the main line of the progressives. Most legal scholars we've been reading says she's going to be somewhere between uh, Kagan and Sotomayor. She's well within the mainstream of, of that judicial philosophy. What what do you see us going forward with Supreme Court nominees? Because uh, Amy Comey Barrett wasn't quite as bad as Kavanaugh. This one's not boring, but it's it's more... What does it say to us about our legal system and the way we (laughs) preserve, what does it say about us and our legal system and how we perceive the Supreme Court that people are almost disappointed that we're having a relatively boring uh, nomination and confirmation hearing? I know we're getting some noise on things like the, the child sex guidelines and things like that, but this is pretty much a boring one that's not in any doubt. Does it speak really ill to us? Because I think it does. That folks are almost disappointed that this isn't turning into a big free for all.
0: I think so. I think we've gotten used to the drama and and the spectacle of it all. Uh, and I think that folks like Holly are really doing their best to to you know make it more like the 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 gladiator events, <laughs> you know, something, watch this person, watch this person fight the lion. And, and, you know, Holly perceives himself to be the lion in this case. So I think, yeah, they're, they're trying really hard to make it interesting. And, uh, I know you make a lot of analogies to professional wrestling and it's, he's trying really hard to, to make a, a main event out of this. And, and, unfortunately yeah i think there is an appetite for the drama and you know we a lot of folks say they don't want it they want civility and they, they, you know um this type of thing to be boring to go back to the days of you know 98 to 2 confirmations and and things like that um it's not where we are right now unfortunately and as long as people continue to uh eat up this kind of contentiousness it's probably going to continue it's great for the fundraising for people who uh are uh, like Holly were making big spectacles of themselves and making it about them as, as a lot of the, um, you know, people on the other side and for Kavanaugh and, and Amy Coney Barrett, they were all giving stump speeches. And that's, that's what this is.
1: Yeah. Uh, to your point, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, nominated August of 93, 96 to three vote. Stephen Breyer, who <laughs> obviously is apropos to the moment, Eighty-seven to nine in nineteen ninety-four. It wasn't that long ago. This stuff, like even uh, the Obama era, which was highly polarized, highly political era. Kagan and Sotomayor were both sixty-three thirty-seven and sixty-eight thirty-one, respectively. Basically, the same spread. Um, and then you get into some of the more real contentious one. I remember when they did Alito, which a lot of people had a problem with Alito. Even he, with all that, he was fifty-eight forty-two. It wasn't really close, and a lot of people had. Um, how do I say this kindly? Because I know he's not your favorite either. Had some legitimate concerns if he was up to the, we would talk about the writing before. A lot of people don't care for Justice Alito's writing. They don't think he's particularly, um, I don't want to see creative, but he, he there's been questions about how well he is for the court. But then you get into the the Trump years and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Amy Comey Barrett were all basically party line votes with the exception of Gorsuch. You've got about a 10 point spread. I think we're just pretty much in party line votes and it's going to be like major legislation where you're going to get it as long as they pass, then you'll get a few deflectors for cover and it's just turned into one more legislative thing, hadn't it?
0: Yeah, I agree with you there. I wonder sometimes it's hard for me to imagine, but you know, what would our, would Ruth Bader Ginsburg vote have looked like today with her, uh, her history on um you know, civil rights cases and 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 such. I I think she would not she would not be in a um, ninety six to three or whatever it was. So it is interesting and unfortunate. I think that it's turned out this way. I mean, I've I've always said that um, in ninety nine percent of the cases that come before the Supreme Court, you know, they're not as politically interested in the outcome as we like to think they are. Uh, there are some big kind of um, cultural issue type cases that uh, people pay the most attention to. But a lot of the things that go on, you know, in the court, you get a lot of 908172 opinions on things that you would have expected to be more partisan. So um, it, I think that the these confirmation hearings are more contentious than the actual court itself.
1: Yeah. Uh, M. Carpenter, I rely on you. A lot of other people do. You're a great writer. Let people know where they can find you and follow your writing and your work.
0: Sure. I'm at Ordinary Dash Times uh, along with you and all of our other friends there. I try to do my Wednesday. I didn't get one done this week, but I had a few last couple of weeks, so I thought I earned a week off. Um, also on Twitter at WVEsquires. Um, follow me. It's unfair that you have so many more followers than I do, so I'm It's time for people to jump on the M train.
1: Yeah, well, I showed up to work this week, so there. Um, Availability is half of greatness. (laughs) M Carpenter, I'm giving you a hard time. You do great work, and yeah, you you earn a little bit of downtime from time to time. Thank you so much for your insight today.
0: All right, thank you.
1: Yes, ma'am.